0: All right. Welcome in, everybody. Good morning. It's a Wednesday morning. We're glad to have you listening here in the middle of your work week. And thanks for choosing this radio show over the other ones. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference, and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. Also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm the Interim Pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. Uh, Yesterday, went down to Columbia, spent the day down there um, doing several things. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Let me first of all tell you that Austin's going to be here in the morning because I'm going to have to head to Columbia probably about six o'clock in the morning, six thirty, something like that. Um, they're going to have a well, there's going to be a, a hearing tomorrow that I need to be present for. I'm not going to. Well, it, it's a, it's already published, but it's a it's it's going to be a, a new pro-life bill uh, that's going to be out, and uh, a, a, you know they're going to have a limited hearing because there's been. And when you think about how how much hearing and how much input has been done on pro-life legislation, when you go back all the way to June, all the way up until today, I mean, it's been multiple times in the Senate, multiple times in the House. And so this bill is either going to, you know, it's either going to come out or not. It's not that lawmakers don't know how people feel about it, but um, representing the Office of Public Policy on a bill like this, I, I need to be there. So anyway, that's what I'm going to be gone in the morning. Um, yesterday, the, um, the bill that, let me get back to it here so I can give you the information accurately. have to use my little phone stand over here. 3728, which is a bill, uh, well, here's the name of it. A bill to amend the South Carolina Code of Laws by enacting the South Carolina Transparency Act, um, which essentially calls for transparency in education. It's just simply saying parents have a right to information. They have a right to information about what curriculum is being used, what's being taught in the classroom, and they have the opportunity, they are granted opportunity in this bill, to have a grievance process where they can raise concerns, and those concerns have to be addressed. Now, there's a lot more in there, but that's the that that's the 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 hub of the bill, shall we say? And it it's a it's a very important bill. It's they've worked on it now for this is the second session. Um, it got they had plenty of testimony last session. Public input um, was raised. You know, opportunity was given for people to speak out, to come and testify. Yesterday, there was a subcommittee meeting, um, and the the subcommittee voted four to two to send this bill to the full education committee. So this is and, – and, and as I sat there yesterday and listened, I'm listening to lawmakers first, and then I'm listening to people who came and signed up to speak, which they only gave them about a minute – because they had 25 people sign up to speak, and they didn't start the hearing until between 4 and 4:30, so um, I didn't stay for the whole thing. I stayed until about 4:45. I listened to some of the speakers. I heard what the lawmakers on the subcommittee had to say, but primarily the objections came along these lines. Um, and and I'm I'm going to try not to overcharacterize this, but. You know, we we transparency is going to foment parents uh, going and complaining about things when they don't uh, evidently don't have enough sense. Is is the way that I interpreted it? They don't have enough sense to get information through transparency and respond to it properly. You know, it's just going to raise up a bunch of crazies. That's so parents. There there are those on this subcommittee who think that parents shouldn't have more information because that'll cause problems for the classroom and it'll cause problems for these teachers. And we'll lose teachers in South Carolina because they're not going to want to come to a state where they can actually be held accountable. Because, you know, if, if you can hide behind the classroom door and teach and put out a bunch of stuff that's not true, that's not accurate, that's a revision of history, then sure, come on in. We we want to pay you, as the governor says, which, look, I have no problem with increasing teacher pay. I, I want to be clear. I'm glad that Governor McMaster has leaned into that, that teacher pay is up in South Carolina, and they're talking about increasing it ever more, uh, even more. I, I agree with that 100 percent, because teachers that do their jobs right deserve to be paid for the kind of work they do um, because it's it's hard work. I mean, I've taught in the classroom. I know what that's like. I know what kind of preparation it takes. You know, people think, oh, they get those long vacations in the summer, and they only work till three o'clock. Blah blah blah. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. Teachers serve on committees. They have to go to meetings after school. They they are, have responsibilities, multiple responsibilities outside the classroom. But besides that, they have to uh, submit. Um, you know, their uh, the term has left me. But anyway the the information that says this is what they're going to teach lesson plan. Thank you. I don't know why that phrase would not come to me. Uh, they have to they have to turn in lesson plans. They have to be um, they have to prepare those in advance. the the amount of preparation that it takes outside the classroom to go into the classroom and to be an effective teacher, uh, the grading of papers, interviews with students, conferences, um, all of those things talking to parents, dealing with the administration, dealing that teachers deserve to get paid um, a, a good wage, uh, and I have no problem with that. But here's the thing. If if they're concerned about transparency, if you have a teacher who says, well, if, if the people on the committee that raised this objection, if, if you have a teacher who says, I, don't, I don't want to come to South Carolina because of this transparency bill. Yeah, we don't want you to come to South Carolina if transparency is not what you're about. you Parents are have a right to know what their children are being taught. Parents are the prime re- people responsible for their children's education. You know, the school system, yeah, it, it, good parents don't just hand their kids over to the school system and then get them back at the end of the day and don't lean in or talk to them or carry on education in the home. And so there's a movement. There are people in South Carolina, and and they're mad as hornets right now because Ellen Weaver got elected superintendent of education, and she believes in transparency. She's pushing transparency. That was part of her campaign campaign. Statement that she wanted parents to have more, not less information. She wanted teachers to be more, not less accountable. And so, you know, to, to, to make that, this bill, I mean, obviously needs to pass to make that happen. Uh, but for, for people to actually say we're going to lose teachers because crazies, and that's, that's how parents are portrayed here. I mean, there was even one, one of the legislators yesterday talked about, um, you know, uh, well, pornography. You've got parents going to school board meetings complaining about pornography. There's no definition of pornography in this bill. Um, excuse me, you, you have to define pornography? I mean, we have community standards about pornography. We have community standards about age-appropriate material. And all we have to do is uphold those and defend them. Uh, We don't have to reinvent the wheel here. I mean, this legislation is comprehensive, and it is a big step forward in favor of teachers and parents because the good teachers don't mind light shined in the classroom. In fact, they want that. They would want that. I mean, if I'm in the classroom and I'm teaching and I'm doing a good job and my students are responding – come on in take a look at this look at how teaching works when it works well but if I'm in there you know teaching uh, the 1619 project on the sly or if I'm using race and and making all kinds of statements about race and sexuality that are are inciting students to divide themselves by race and are giving students information about sexuality that, is the responsibility of their parents, and they don't need that at a certain age. I mean, we need to know that. Parents have a right to know because it's their responsibility to raise their children. And so when you hear pushback, I mean, I, I got pretty hot yesterday listening to some of the pushback on this bill based around, well, transparency is a bad thing. You know, we, you, you need to leave the schools alone. Leave the education to the professionals. Don't watch. Go do something else. Uh, stay out of your children's lives because the state knows how to raise them better than you do. That's pretty much the mindset that I'm hearing from those who oppose this bill. So thankfully, it passed out of the subcommittee. It's going to the full committee. It will pass the full committee. I mean, this is something that the superintendent of education and the governor— both want to see happen, and then it's going to go to the floor, and hopefully, it, I mean, there's going to they'll be trying to make some amendments. They're going to try to add language that will hobble the bill. I think that those amendments will be defeated. I think they'll be heard. I think they'll be voted down, and this bill should pass the House and get over to the Senate. Gene, thanks for calling. So what, uh, to what extent is the, uh, uh, I don't know, the American Federation of Teachers or the Teachers Union Involved in this process as adversaries of, of transparency in the classroom. I mean, well, that, like I said, I'm I, sure they're out there, and I'm sure they've infiltrated the uh, the public school system. Well, like I said, I I didn't listen to all of the testimony. Most of it um, that I you know there were teachers who were you know standing up and saying uh, various things, but they only had a minute. The most of the testimony that I heard that really bothered me came from a couple of representatives on the committee and their, you know, the arguments that they made against the bill. And and they were clear. They were saying, oh, we want transparency, but here's the questions we have about the bill. Well, the questions they had were all geared to work against full transparency. It was to limit transparency in some way by either scaring people into thinking that we'll never get teachers to come because they're going to be falsely accused and making people think that parents are a bunch of kooks, generally, who go to school board meetings and rant and rave. I mean, that uh, it, it's, it's very insulting. Uh, it's talking down to people. It's treating parents as if they're second-class citizens and that they have no role in their children's education. And that kind of stuff has to stop. Gene, thanks for the call. I appreciate it very much. Okay, why is juvenile crime going through the roof? According to the Wall Street Journal- Since 2019, there's been a 30% increase in homicides by juveniles acting alone and a 66% increase in homicides committed by multiple juveniles. In other words, those running around in a gang or acting in concert. 30% increase, 66% increase for juveniles in a group. I mean, this is unbelievable. You realize for 25 years, we've seen a steady, or we saw, I should say, a steady decrease in the number of crimes, violent crimes in particular, committed by juveniles. In the last three to four years, the numbers have completely reversed, and any gains that were made in cutting down juvenile violent crime has been erased because of the environment that we're in. When you look at major cities, of course, 2022, for example, Philadelphia had a 55% increase in juvenile violent crime. Washington, DC had a 77% increase in 2022. And you can go through all the major cities. I mean, it it doesn't matter, um, particularly, again, those run by Democrats you've got an explosion of juvenile crime. There are now more homicides committed by people under 18 than at any other time in the last 20 years. So we're at, we're at a 20-year high for juvenile homicides, people 18 or under, or under 18, I should say, that are going out and killing people. Now, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a trend that has to be reversed. So what are these cities doing? What 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 are Philadelphia and Chicago doing? Well, they do what progressives do. They look at a problem and they come up with a solution that has nothing to do with the problem. That does not affect the problem even a little bit, which fascinates me. Look, progressives are not ignorant people. They 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 can look at the data. They can they know the numbers. And then for them to look at the number, know data, know the numbers, and then to enact some of the laws that they say are going to improve or make this problem better is just stunning to me. For example, in Philadelphia and Chicago and D.C. and some of these other cities, they've enacted curfews. So if you're a certain age, if you're under 18, you have to be off the street by 10 o'clock or by 11 o'clock or by midnight or you know whatever the curfew is in the particular city. Here's the problem. Most juvenile crime takes place after school. In other words, before the curfew goes into effect. Right after school, when juveniles are transitioning from school to home or they get home and there's not much of a home for them to go home to, they tend to go back out and the crimes get committed in that window. And so the curfew and the second thing is curfews are extremely difficult to enforce. I mean, how do you have to stop when you see juveniles out at night after curfew, you have to stop them, you have to verify their age, you can't um, and what are you gonna do? You're gonna make them go home, tell them to go home, um, and then they move in that direction, and the police go off in a different direction, and the juveniles come right I mean, come right back out. There's unless they're taken into custody, then just simply telling them that you're supposed to be at home is not gonna cut it. So you know there's in in a lot of these cities, because of the reforms that went into place, after, the George Floyd, um, after George Floyd's death and after the riots that ensued. And, and once again, I feel like every time I talk about George Floyd, because it was blown up into this huge issue over race and led to the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, the justice system never mentioned race When they tried Chauvin or the other officers, or it was never brought up in the courtroom. They were not charged with any crime related to race because the the race was not an issue in the crime except for people who exploit race for their own purposes and make it an opportunity for them to make a name for themselves or to get rich, as in the case of the Black Lives Matter movement— a lot of the leaders of that movement got very rich. Candace Owens has a documentary at Daily Wire if you want to go to watch that. I mean everything that she puts out is backed up by facts and it's uh, it it'll it'll turn your stomach. So in in a lot of these cities after the George after George Floyd died, they enacted judicial reform including the idea that 14- to 17-year-olds can't be charged with a crime. For example, in New York City, I mean, most 14- to 17-year-olds, even if they commit a crime, are turned over to the custody of their parents and not charged. They're treated like, okay, you know, this is a disciplinary problem. You parents need to go home and take care of this problem. Well, obviously the parents have not been capable of taking care of it, their juveniles are roaming the streets, committing crimes, and yet the justice system says, okay, the solution is to tell the parents they need to be more involved, and that'll fix it. And of course, oddly enough, that's not working. So why are we seeing this this spike? Well, if you look at the two sides politically, uh, you'll see very different ideas about what's causing the spike. Progressives – say here's what we need to happen there's not enough government spending i'm shocked that progressives would say that government is the solution we need to pour money into these neighborhoods in philadelphia dc um in chicago uh, in Detroit. We just we just need to inundate these areas with government programs and government spending. If the Republicans weren't trying to get the national debt down on the backs of our young people, then they would have the money that they need in order to do what? Be better armed? I mean, that Spending money on government programs is not going to discipline juveniles, nor is it going to convince them that they need to stop committing crime just because money's pouring into the neighborhood projects. Progressives also say, as you might guess, it's easy access to guns. If we just had better gun laws, then juvenile crime would go through the floor because the juveniles would not be able to get the guns. Well, i got news for you. All of the cities, the major cities, that are experiencing a spike, tremendous spike in juvenile crime, are cities that have the strictest gun laws in the country. Gun laws are not going to matter. Gun laws don't keep people intent on committing violent crime from having the means to do so. These shootings that have happened in California over the last few days, I mean, California has extremely strict gun laws. These it either these people are getting weapons legally or they're breaking the law, and it re, does it really matter which it is? They're arming themselves and killing people. And so, but but for everything, if you're a progressive, every problem related to crime is an opportunity to pontificate about gun control. In fact, talking, President Biden came out, he put out a tweet, um, and he made a statement or released a statement from the White House saying, asking Congress to send an assault weapons ban to his desk right away. Now, that's in response to the shootings in California. Problem is, the shootings in California were carried out with a semi-automatic handgun that's been legal in this country since Grover Cleveland. I mean, this is... It you know now one of the one of the weapons had an expanded magazine uh, that had was able to carry multiple rounds and that's illegal in the state of California. But the weapons themselves were semi-automatic and the the way the New York Times and others describe this, they're telling people the the weapon will fire as many times as you can pull the trigger. Another round is is introduced into the chamber. Duh. How many people in this country don't know what a semi-automatic means? And so, again, got a problem, got a crime problem, we've got the solution, gun control. Take the guns away from law-abiding citizens, and then these people that are lawbreakers are going to feel sorry for us, I guess, and they're not going to bring their guns because they know that we won't have one. I mean, is that, that, that seems to be the logic behind some of these progressives and their ideas. Um, Here's some conservative ideas about how to address this problem. Soft-on crime policies that were instituted after George Floyd's death are part of the problem. This idea that 14- to 17-year-olds should be released to the custody of their parents. Now, I don't know if you followed this story, but over the weekend in the New York subway, Adam, Adam Klotz, who is a very popular weather person, Um, a weatherman over at Fox News, was attacked by a group of juveniles on a New York subway. In fact, these juveniles were harassing an old man. They tried to set him on fire. They set his hair on fire. And when Adam Klotz Klotz, tried to intervene, they turned on him and, and beat him to the point that he had to go to the hospital. I mean, he ended up with black eyes. He had bruised ribs and other injuries from just being pummeled by a group of juveniles. Now, three of them were arrested. Three of the juveniles were picked up, but because of their age, now now get this, they assaulted. They were assaulting an old, an elderly man. Adam Klotz tried to intervene. They beat him to a pulp. Three of the assailants are taken into custody and immediately released to their parents without charges being filed because they were between 14 and 17 and that's the law in New York City Now I don't you know call me crazy but if if that's the kind of laws you're going to put in place this is the kind of violence you can expect if juveniles know that there's no discipline I mean, if, 14, if somebody between 14 and 17 knows they can go out and beat somebody along with their compadres to a pulp on a subway and then mom and dad get called, come down to the police station and take them home, why would you not do it if that's what you're inclined to do? There is no deterrence. Eric Adams has to know this. The mayor of New York, he was the police chief for Pete's sake. He sees this kind of stuff all the time. So, I, you know, I, I don't see anything changing until we, we see some of these problems addressed along the lines of the justice system. But also, and this is a more difficult uh, solution, but the vast majority of these juveniles that are committing violent crimes, there's no father in the home. And a lot of them don't even have a home. I mean, they don't have a stable home they go to. They come from drug neighborhoods where, you know, their mom is a crack addict and their dad's not there. Um, what what kind of what kind of life do you think they're going to, going to live? I mean, we've got to, if we we've undermined marriage and the family and the home in every way possible in this country. And now we're surprised that the end result is dysfunctional homes that turn out juveniles that want to commit violent crimes? I I don't understand how we could think that that would not happen. That has to be, that's going to be a natural response. So we need to address the problem of the family. We need to stop the destruction of the family. We need to encourage moms and dads to get married, stay together, raise their children, and pass along their values. That's kept America stable for over 200 years. It's just been in the last 40 years that that's began to break down, along with the breakdown of the family. And of course, the final thing is these COVID lockdowns that played a role. I mean, you you had students that were kicked out of school. We closed all the schools. It affected their mental health, it affected them physically. Their schedules got upended, and I mean, it's just a bunch of setbacks. And it has been a motivator for this rise in juvenile violence because of the effects of the shutdowns, what it did psychologically to a whole generation. Eugene, thanks for calling. Well, good morning, Dr. Tony. You good see, morning. From my perspective, this is not rocket science. It all began with the breakup of the home, and, and there are no values. There is no respect for life. Case in point: the abortion issue. They are now seen in several states. Hey, it's okay to murder that baby in the womb. So if I shoot a few people, what's the big deal? Well, that's a that's actually a very good point, Eugene. I appreciate you calling and making it look. There's a there. It's not only the idea of a problem with parents and the home and the breakdown of the home although that's a major problem but you do have a mindset in this country if it's okay to kill babies all the way up to birth and the and progressives that's what they want in fact they want if if the intent was for the baby to be aborted they're fine if the baby is a is killed after it's born I mean if, if the intent of the mother was abortion so, if, if that's the mindset that people are growing up with, then life has no value. If it has no value in the womb, why would it have any value in the street? And these juveniles pick up on that, and then they act on it. I just, I just have a question for progressives, and I think it's a fair question. It's not a gotcha question. What is it about progressives that makes them apparently— incapable, or at least have difficulty in quoting America's founding documents. You know, if you're going to quote the Declaration of Independence, if you want to be president of the United States and you decide you're going to quote that, you should be able to rattle off the words endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, among those the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, you, you should be able... Uh, you know, a, a first grader should be able to do that. And certainly, if you're a leader, political leader in this country, and you want to be president of the United States, you should be able to do that. But this is this is Joe Biden when he was on the campaign trail back in March of 2020 when he tried to quote that line from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, all men and women created by go. You know the you know the thing. You you know you know the thing. One more time, okay? I mean that's that. It's not enough just to hear that once. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by go, You know the, you know the thing. You 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 know the thing. Now that's he wanted to be president, and he is, and he can't quote the Declaration of Independence. Now you can you can lay that at the feet of Joe Biden and the fact that his mental acuity. Um, is diminished by his age. I mean, look, I've, I've been honest and upfront. I can't remember things the way that I used to. I mean, I was trying to remember the phrase lesson plan a while ago. And because I haven't been in that world for a while, you know, it's rattling around up there. But it just, it you know, it, it took me a minute to retrieve it, and it took me and Gary together to get it. And and all all I'm saying is... That happens as you get older. It's part of the aging process. Now, I do a lot to try to keep my mind sharp um and I'm not talking about taking previsit or whatever that stuff is. I'm talking about you know doing um word puzzles and you know playing the guitar at at my age. I'm learning to play the guitar i mean I'm still learning. I started in my fifties and now i'm I'm playing you know at night I mean just things. I take on new challenges. I I read. I listen to podcasts and books, you know, audible books, and I I try to write and keep doing that on a regular basis, and it keeps the mind sharp, but you're still going to lose a little bit. With me, it's names sometimes and particular phrases, but the Declaration of Independence when you're a public official—now— Kamala Harris quoted the Declaration of Independence when she was talking about abortion and, and accusing Republicans of, you know saying, "How dare you to Republicans in the Congress who, like Senator Graham talked about yesterday, would like to pass a national ceiling, or limit I wouldn't say a ceiling, but a limit to abortion. 15 weeks. United States would be then among most of the developed countries of the world. Now, I don't want a 15-week abortion ban. In South Carolina, I want to ban abortions beginning at conception, because I believe that's when life begins, and that's when rights should be applied. But on the national level, I get that the political will is not available to get something more than a 15-week ban, even if the political will is there for that but that would make a federal limit so that states couldn't go beyond 15 weeks, and a lot of states now like California, New York, uh, Illinois, I mean, those are sanctuary states for abortions at any time during the pregnancy. I mean, this is a a national 15-week ban on abortion would save a lot of babies in the womb. It would. It's not perfect it's not as far as i want it to go but then each state has the ability to go farther that's what the overturning of roe versus wade was all about so kamala harris gets up and she's railing against this she's saying that you know republicans are trying to get between a woman and her doctor that republicans are uh, trying to take health care away from women because the latest mantra that progressives roll out is the fact that abortion is health care which is, yeah, at, first of all, it's not a good thing for the woman and it's the killing of a baby. Where healthcare fits in that process, I can't imagine. You're hurting a woman, you're making it more likely for her to have issues down the road. Maybe she can't get pregnant when she wants to, maybe she has an increased chance of getting breast cancer or something. I mean, and So it hurts the woman, and if not those things, psychologically, even if she doesn't admit it. And the baby, the life is taken. Where is health care in any of those things? So Kamala Harris decides that she's going to quote the Declaration of Independence to bolster her argument. But notice the things that she omits when she speaks about it. Here we go. It is a promise of freedom and liberty, not for some, but for all. Okay, by the way, up to this point, she's exactly right. America is a promise of freedom and liberty for all. But when you begin to talk about that and expand it and talk about where that promise comes from— It would behoove you to know what you're talking about and to include all of the words in the context so that what you're communicating is the truth and not a distorted version of our forefathers' wisdom. Here we go. A promise we made in the Declaration of Independence. Oh, let's hear it. That we are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, so we're endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And, and we're endowed by who? Endowed by a piece of paper? Endowed by a majority vote in Congress? No, we're endowed by our creator. That's what the founder said. But she doesn't want to talk about God. And she also doesn't want to talk about life. Those inalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if you're, if you're in favor of abortion all the way up into the moment of birth and even after in some cases, then you can't talk about that promise of the Declaration of Life. If you're going to talk about the promise to the American people, we need to extend that promise to all life, born and unborn. But she's unwilling to do that, and so she's perfectly happy to distort the Declaration of Independence, she should be ashamed. So should everybody who cheered that moment. And and I guarantee you, there are people who would love to get life taken out of the Declaration of Independence. They would love just to edit it out. They would like to get the creator removed. But I got news for you. Even if you try to remove God from the Declaration of Independence, you cannot remove him from his sovereignty over this universe. And As far as life is concerned, most Americans understand that life is precious. Some Americans are confused about when it begins. We've got to do a better job in convincing the American people not only why life is precious, most of them get that, but a lot of them don't understand when that begins or the logic behind killing a baby in the womb and then still saying that you value life. That, that's, that's a huge contradiction. Okay, um, before we get into the next story, just quickly, uh, because I love baseball, Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff are the only two that are going to be going into the Baseball Hall of Fame um, this year. Scott Rowland, you have, you have to be included on 75%, that's the, the benchmark, of sports writers' ballots to get in. And there were a whole bunch of names out there for the Hall of Fame this time. Scott Rowland, out of 297 writers' ballots, he got 76.3%. I mean, he got like five votes more than he needed to make the Hall of Fame. Uh, played for a lot of te- for several teams, mostly uh, the Philadelphia Phillies and the St. Louis Cardinals. He was the third baseman. He's the 1997 National League Rookie of the Year. He won eight Gold Glove Awards in his 17-year career. He hit for an average of .281. Was on base at a rate rate of 364. Um, he slugged 460 while hitting 316 home runs. He won a World Series ring in 2006 as part of the St. Louis Cardinals. So that gets you in the Hall of Fame. It's not bad. What you don't like that batting batting 281. It's uh, 281. 316 home runs. Well, he got in. Look, he, he Look, got I don't in. want to keep the guy out, but no, when you got, said his name, I'm going, Scott who? Scott Rowland got in because of his defense. Go back and think, okay. he was Rookie of the Year, he won eight Gold Glove Awards, and he was also, um, I forget how many times, elected to the All-Star team. So, And he was on a World Series team, won a World Series ring. Uh, with the Cardinals, okay. so Fred McGriff hit 493, I think, home runs. Now I've heard of him. Um, well, of course, because he was an Atlanta Brave. He was <laughs> well, McGriff, the Crime Dog, is what they called him. Played all places. That so. Time. Well, that's true. But uh, anyway, um, so that's that's your Hall of Fame this year. Two players. McGriff was known. He played first base. He was known more for his slugging, more for his hitting, than he was for his defense. And then you have Scott Rowland, who was known more for his defense than he was known for what he did at the plate. Like I said, he had 316 home runs. I mean, that puts him, what, 400th or something? I don't know. I mean, I don't have many. But he's he's not in the top echelon, obviously, no. of power hitters. Uh, but he is as a second baseman. I mean, a third baseman. Third and basement. third base is, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a pretty tough place to play defensively. Yeah. Um, I think of Brooks Robinson, Mike Schmidt. I think of those. Those are all-star third basemen. I don't know. Well, so guy. was Scott Rowland. Well, I knew Scott Rowland's name. I, my mom, for whatever reason, became a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Huh? She just she just decided she loved the Cardinals. You know, I mean, I, I'm sure he's so, a good player. So, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, he said himself he never saw himself as being a Hall of Fame baseball player. But those are the ones that probably deserve to get in more than anybody. Uh, not the ones that are out campaigning and begging. You know, I deserve to be in there. Look what I've done. No, this guy's like minding his own business. What, really? you kidding me. You're going to put me in the Hall of Fame? Um, so congratulations. Good news for Scott Rowland. Uh, by the way, and we're not going to have much time here to get to a story, so we'll just wait till the after the, the news break. But Chip Carey, and this is a big deal to me, Chip Carey's leaving Atlanta it looks like he's going, I think, to the Cardinal organization. Is that what I saw? I'd have to go back and check, double-check the story. Let me see if I can pull it up right quick. Chip Carey leaves at L- Atlanta, and this will tell me what I need to know. Um, Chip is leaving New York for another team. Yeah, thanks. I know that. Oh, the Cardinals. No, he had a similar position with the Cardinals, uh maybe he yeah he's going back there because he's from oh, okay. he's from that area that's kind of his home. Uh, you know he left come to Atlanta to work with his dad uh, Skip, Car- um, Skip Carey, Carry It was legend a legend in Atlanta calling baseball games and um, and so but he's been in Atlanta for a long time now and this I mean I'm, I'm gonna miss it because I listened to to more baseball mm-hmm. than I watch. He's very good. Simply because you know, a lot of times I've got to be out in the evening, but I satellite radio I can listen to all the Braves games, and so just his voice and the fact that he was connected with Skip Carey, um, you know, that's when when my when my son's phone rings, mm-hmm. it's Skip Carey going Braves win, Braves win, Braves. Win! If you go back and you remember. Um, when, uh, who was that, that? The guy that can't run very fast. Yeah, I know. He came sliding <laughs> into home plate and, and won the division for him. That's right. Uh, Sid Bream. Sid, Sid Bream. So, they were, you know, um, so that's that. That's why if you're a baseball fan, you're, you're thinking, is that really a big deal? Some announcer's going to go do another team? Well, you don't understand baseball. I mean, that's announcers – are a lot of what make the game, their, their commentary, the way they talk about the game, the way they paint a picture. Um, you can really paint some good pictures, word pictures, with baseball if you're a good announcer. And, you know, I, I think I've told you this story before, but I mean, I, I grew up, when I was a kid, my dad would go stay with my grandmother at night because she was elderly and her in my grandfather had passed away when I was six. And so I would go with my dad sometimes and we'd sleep in the same bed, big bed, out in the front bedroom, and we'd lay there in bed at night listening to the Atlanta Braves. And I'm so connected to that story and that so connects me to my dad, uh, who took me to a few games down when the Braves were still playing Atlanta Fulton the old Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. You know, I that I, when I hear a, a game, a baseball game on the radio now, I think it, it it's just fond memories. It connects me to my dad again, who passed away back in 1996, I think it was. Mom died in 94, dad 96, yeah, my sister in 97.